Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a holiday weekend, so let's have a listen to my April 2018 conversation with John Acomfra. The ICA Boston is about to present the U.S. debut of John Acomfra's Purple. It opens today to East Boston residents and ICA members and to the general public on May 26th. It will remain on view in Boston through September 2nd. Purple is a six-channel video installation that addresses climate change and its effect on human communities, biodiversity, and the wilderness. The work is installed at the new ICA Watershed. Acomfra's work has been shown at the Tate Britain, the ICA London, the Museum of Modern Art New York, SF MoMA, and more. This week's interview was taped on the occasion of the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University's presentation of Precarity, a work that it commissioned for its collection and that debuted at the Ogden Museum as part of the recent Prospect 4 Triennial in New Orleans. Precarity loosely tells the story of cornet player Buddy King Bolden, the most popular musician in turn of the 20th century New Orleans, and a man known for improvisation and volume. In 1907, under circumstances that remain unclear, he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson with schizophrenia. There are no known surviving recordings of Bolden's work, but historian Ted Gioia credits Bolden and his band with being the originator of what we now call jazz. Acomfra's film is as much an exploration of New Orleans and southern Louisiana, its history, and how its history impacts the present, as it is a consideration of Bolden. Speaking of Bolden, his life is the subject of the new feature film, Bolden, which is in theaters now. It stars Gary Carr as Bolden and features original music written, arranged, and performed by Wynton Marsalis. Back to John Acomfra. He's up after the break. Brooklyn songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and singer La Rain makes her Los Angeles debut June 22nd in the Getty's annual outdoor concert series off the 405. Enjoy an evening of 90s R&B, musique concrète, and ambient soundscapes amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Odyssey, Jack Witten Sculpture 1963-2017, the first major exhibition dedicated to sculptures by renowned contemporary artist Jack Witten. Each created in Greece over the course of Witten's five-decade career, 40 sculptures made from a diverse spectrum of materials, including wood, marble, copper, bone, fishing wire, and personal mementos, are showcased in this extensive and entirely unknown body of work. On view through May 27th. Visit mfah.org Witten for more. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O. Naturel, the first American survey of one of the UK's most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O. Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O. Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. This summer at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, see Barbara Hammer in This Body, a world premiere exhibition that captures the full scope of work by the pioneering artist and LGBT cinema icon. Cecilia Vicuña, Lo Precario, The Precarious, a collection of more than 50 of the Chilean-born artists' lyrical, intimately scaled sculptures, and Jason Moran, the first museum exhibition of visual art by the world-renowned jazz musician and composer. They're all on view at the WEX June 1st through August 11th, along with a site-specific mural by Alicia McCarthy, which is on view through August 1st. 
For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. John Acomfra, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. The subject of precarity, at least in terms of the human subject, is a uh, musician named Buddy Bolden. How did you come to know of him and why did he interest you? You know, this is the the fascinating point for me uh, because it tells you something about the nature of his disappearance. I go to New Orleans just over a decade ago to, to make a film on Louis Armstrong. And I'm there in part because I was told by all the books that I'd read that Louis Armstrong was the foundational figure, the father of jazz. And I get there and I'm encountered. I come into contact with, make all these encounters with this other figure it's called Charles Buddy Bolden. And until I got to New Orleans, principally to make a film on Louis Armstrong, I had never heard of this man. And that fascination with the disappeared is pretty much what has animated this because I felt a kind of debt, sense of uh, debt to this figure who I had inadvertently robbed of his place in the pantheon of jazz. <laughs> so I thought at some point I needed to put it right. And so when um, Trevor Schoolmaker asked me to, to take part in, in, in Prospect. It was one of the ideas I was keen to explore with him. And, you know, because of his interest in, in, in music and in African-American music from that part of the world, he didn't need too much persuading. Obviously, to a considerable extent, jazz and New Orleans are very closely tied, both in the historical past and in the present. Did you go into precarity, the planning and research for precarity, thinking mostly about Bolden or was making the city and Louisiana's past a big part of your work, something that was as important to do? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the early 20th, uh, late 19th century American landscape is of some interest, let's say, to me. So I'm drawn to events, figures, characters from that, that, that moment. And uh, that is a very big part of the pool. The, the, the impulse for wanting to take this on uh, had a lot to do with that. But I, I'm also interested in the intellectual history of the American South at that point. I'm interested in many of the insights that you get from somebody like Booker T. Washington. And I'm interested in the debate between Washington's sense of what is possible to to achieve as an American, African-American subject. What I was very keen on trying to do was to then use that very much as a kind of counterpoint to the ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois, especially the souls of black folk. Now, you know, both figures are working, writing and thinking at the same time as Bolden is playing, at the height of his powers, if you will. You know, so the Black Folk comes out in 1905, up from slavery is 1908. You know, 
Buddy Bolden stops playing in 1907, but between the late 1890s and 1906, he pretty much was the canonical, influential figure in this newly evolving, developing music. So in a way, what I wanted to do was to create a kind of gumbo with all of these elements, the intellectual history of African-American thought at the time, sonic revolutions, principally in the New Orleans area, but not exclusively. And of course, an interest in both the sartorial and landscape features of American life at that point in time. All of that gets thrown in to a kind of gumbo, <laughs> and what you get is precarity. I'm glad you mentioned the film's uh, sartorial extravagance. We'll get to that a little bit later. The, the 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 clothing and costumes, if you will, in precarity are, you know, oh my God level. Early in the film, you use a line from Genesis and you use it repeatedly. The Lord said to Noah, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth. I will destroy all flesh. And it's easy, especially in 2018, to uh, read the line and to see some of the imagery in precarity as a specific reference to Katrina, as a suggestion that Katrina is supernatural payback for uh, everything from the state's incarceration of Buddy Bolden in an insane asylum to a metaphor for how Louisiana and New Orleans have treated African-Americans and, and, and other black Americans. Were you specifically interested in a Katrina reference, or were you more interested in, in the river, a broader reference to the river, to the Mississippi, and to seasonal flooding, and to regular flooding? That is so interesting, Tyler. I Wow, that is really, really interesting. Because, you know, everything you say is right, but I was looking at it from the, I suppose, the wrong side of the telescope. <laughs> of course... Katrina is is important, but the precarity of the title was important for me because it, it, it was about trying to understand this sense of fragility that the city occupies as an ecosystem in, 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 in that part of the world. You know, much of it, as you know, is reclaimed land. Much of it is, you know, constantly at the sort of mercy, if you will, of of, of flooding and, and, and waters. And so the, the sense of overflow of water as a kind of biblical presence, foreboding presence, if you will, in that space was important to me. But I was also interested in the sort of, I mean, you know, we're talking period of reconstruction now, you know, the 1860s to 1890s, and, you know, and, and there is a kind of precarity to black subjecthood you know, endlessly faced with this foreboding threat of the flood of racist reaction, you know. So I'm, I was interested in, in, in water in both a metaphoric and a kind of metonymic sense. I was interested in the sense in which black identities and especially when it comes to questions of citizenship seemed precariously balanced over a kind of turbulent waters, if you like, of antipathy and, and, and dislike. So, uh, yes, I hadn't, it, it never struck me that biblical floods might be seen on my part as kind of retribution. I certainly didn't think about it that way, but I can see why that could be a legitimate reading as well. It's certainly unintended, put it that way. Because <laughs> there are a lot of 
beautiful landscape shots in the work, both identifiable as, as urban spaces, you know, with uh, roads moving over a couple feet above the water, and then also kind of more, this is a horrible phrase, but industrial pastorals, where we see an, an oil refinery or a chemical factory sitting just barely above the water. That carries through the entire 40, 45 minute, whatever it is, work. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things which, when you embark on something like this, you, you're, you're aware that you're doing is mining a kind of folkloric or archetypal tradition. And, and clearly, in, in African-American folklore, especially from that part of the world, uh, I was aware from really pretty early on how much water imagery pervaded song forms, poetry, uh, and sayings. It's, it's just, you know, whether it's the more famous ones like Wade in the Water or Deep River, you know, there, there, there clearly is a sort of appeal in, in African-American folk form to biblical references to floods or water as both a destructive and redemptive force. And I, I wanted to include that in this piece. I wanted it to not just be in the sound, but, but to, to find a way of visualizing that, if you will, and, and what that means. Now, you know, a lot of the times, the appeal to water is for a kind of cleansing, a quest for salvation, if you like. I'm going to wade in the water because I want to be clean, I want to be free, I want to, to get over it, to get to the other side and all of that, you know. So in a way, what mattered most to me was to see what a landscape would look like, suffused by water imagery that was drawn from, from this tradition of, of songs and, and gospels and folklore, if you will. One of the other elements that it seems fairly plain that you wanted to find ways to reference, especially given that Buddy Bolden was held by the state in an insane asylum was the was the warehousing of people in Louisiana a practice that of course continues to this day and and the way i i read it is that you one of the ways maybe the major way you chose to make that reference was with a sequence that involves fingerprint cards hundreds and hundreds probably thousands of fingerprint cards all of which of course are handled by white people did you consider other ways of referencing the warehousing of humans? And then why did you pick the, the way you chose? I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the, the ideas of Michel Foucault, for whom, you know, the 19th century was a, was a sort of turning point, you know, uh, because it heralded this becoming of the surveillance as a kind of disciplinary power, if you will, or... Uh, surveillance as a sort of branch of governmentality, as I think he called it. So much of much of the uh, reference to to the cataloging of people, if you will, is 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 about trying to reference that emergence of disciplinary powers as as a sort of feature of state life. It was simply one of the ways that I thought uh, one ought to. To say that because you know when you watch precarity there are images abound in it of people at work various forms of work and the 
the manufacturing of a society is quite literally one of the things I'm interested in. And of course, the, you know, the disciplinary arm of, of that manufacture is essential to, to highlight because it's, it's part of the mix, you know. So I don't, I don't make too much of it, but I think it is a necessary element in this mix for what would become American society at the turn of the last century. Um, and I, I just thought it ought, to, it ought to be there, you know. The building that you use as, as the asylum in which Bolden is held, I, I, I don't know what that building is. I, I, I don't know if it is or was an asylum, at least on the, the, the external shots of it. But it's, it, it does not look like a panopticon, but there are, you know, which is a, for listeners who don't know, it's a, a, a building that is designed to allow all of the institu- inmates of an institution to be seen from a single point, by, from, from a single person, without the inmates knowing or being able to tell they are being observed. But there are moments where I felt like you were maybe referencing panopticons and what they are and was was that intentional was that something you thought about explored i mean we looked very hard for the the benthamite building that might allow us to 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 reference the panopticon much more precisely but i think in the way what we found was different and and an interesting variant on on 19th century disciplinary regimes. This was a hospital on the outskirts of New Orleans. It was a 19th century hospital for lepers. It's an amazing, it's an amazing shape. Yeah. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary. And has been a military base for for a while as well. So here you have this, this space, which clearly is to corral and keep the incurables, as it were. But they can't be managed in the same way as one would manage, you know, let's say, criminals who needed to be observed. These were people who simply needed to be shut away and they needed to be regulated in a much more geometric way. You know, you walk this way because if you made the mistake of walking that way, you might contaminate someone. You know, so it was interesting for me to see a version of disciplinary power from the 19th century, which didn't conform to the Foucauldian notion of, of, of a disciplinary regime, which was based essentially on what you could see and how you can observe. You know, this was very much an American variant and all the more interesting because of that for me, you know. Yeah, panopticons go back to the late 18th century and, and they're English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of shots looking down long hallways in the building that we are meant to read as the place where Bolden is held. Lots of these shots kind of su- suggest, you know, perspective running away to a vanishing point. And in the American art tradition, this is most famously used with railroad tracks. And artists in the late 19th century used them, and really into the 20th century, used them as a metaphor for the endless potential of America's West and Western lands. And, and here you use them very differently. Why were those shots of, of interest to you? Why, why, was, why did they hold appeal? I mean, I, you know, this is, 
so interesting that you you picked up on that. As you know, the 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 quattrocentro uh, perspective, which is what we're talking about essentially, is is one of the sort of defining you know features of of our modernity. It starts sometime in the you know in, in the 15th century and came to define you know the modern period. But it's always associated with sort of progressive and and enlightenment themes. And I think one of the few advantages we have making work now, especially time-based work, is is to interrogate that whole art history tradition and come to different conclusions uh, about it. You know, because one of the things that we tend to do when we when we discuss especially the European Enlightenment is to stress the extent to which it it it, it it was a move away from, quote unquote, the darkness of the medieval period. But, you know, the Renaissance period is also the time of uh, exterminist adventures in, in the New World. It's, it's a period of New World slavery. It's a period of uh, genocidal impulses that led to, you know, large parts of the globe being being emptied of, of indigenous people and, and, and the marginalizing of indigeneity, period. So occasionally it feels to me as if we need to use that perspective to also suggest something of the dark side of the Renaissance, something of the dark side of the modern period. So I'm self-consciously deploying that perspective in that sense, as a as a way of of moving it away from this endless stressing of it as a, a sort of feature of of light and and, and progress, it's, it wasn't always, in my view. I want to step away from visuals for a moment to ask a sound question. One of the really striking moments of sound design in the work comes in conjunction with a scene of huge bales of cotton being rolled and loaded onto boats. Uh, it, historical footage. And then you give us contemporary footage of big red paddle wheelers, steamships, I, I think is how we're meant to read them, read them in the film. And the sound of the paddle wheeler, the steamship, the thing, rises to a cacophony of white noise. I think it's the absolute loudest moment of, of the work. Why so much of white noise? Why so loud? What did that mean for you? I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, I was keen to do with this piece is to always stress the extent to which, you know, sound and and in imagery might allow us some insight into into this figure. You know, let's not forget this is first and foremost a piece about a figure who was incarcerated in 1907 and spent the rest of his life in that institution. And incarcerated for pretty much throwing a pitcher of water. Yeah, but uh, you know, at a person, and he did it. He did it twice. So, but you know, it's but but yeah. I mean, but that's not the same as other things that. <laughs> no, I hear. <laughs> what I don't want to do is to romanticize a certain kind of dis-ease, which Bolden clearly embodied. He doesn't strike me as a figure who was particularly happy at that point in his life. And to that extent, he's the forebear to, you know, 
Thelonious Monk or Bob Powell or Charles Mingus. Or, I mean, there are uh, there is a history in jazz of figures who clearly uh, bouted with bipolarity and schizophrenia of various forms. And so it is quite possible that the that, that Charles Buddy Bolden was one such figure. The, the oral history suggests that there was, there was a point when he was just drinking a huge amount, volumes of the stuff. Now, he may not have been bipolar, he may not have had bouts of schizophrenia, but there was, there was clearly a kind of unsettlement, a discomfort, a, a, an unhappiness somewhere. Was it to do with the, the, the nature of his subjecthood at the time in New Orleans society? Did he want more than he could do? I mean, what was it? I don't know. And that's, that's part of the fatal attraction of this figure. You know, he allows us the, the opportunity to project all sorts of stuff on, on him because we don't know what actually happened. And it, it seemed to me that it was worth at least exploring the option that he might face one of the key agonies of, of African-American life at the time. Here you are, you're, you're a citizen of one of the most powerful states on the planet at the time. And you're making massive contributions to its power and its sense and its wealth. But you're also on the margins of that society. You can see the, the power, the wealth and the status, but, but it's just beyond reach for you. And I, I was keen to try and explore that a little bit. I was keen to explore what it feels or could have felt like to be a second class citizen in the most advanced industrial space in this part of, the, of, of our planet at the time, you know. So that's that's the interest. It's it's in the 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 undercurrents of disempowerment in advanced industrial capitalism, especially American of the American variety. Put it that way. I suspect that answer has something to do with the next thing I want to ask about, which is the intense, overwhelming, ravishing beauty of the film. The way you use beauty. And I want to get at that in what I think are two really different ways. One, some of the most beautiful shots in the film are of oil refineries and chemical industry factories, these intensely industrial spaces juxtaposed against the river, against something growing next to the river, might be sugar. I mean, what was once sugar might, might still be, I don't know. Why were the industrial buildings of interest and why did you plainly go out of your way to make them as gorgeous as humanly possible? I mean, you know, there is a, there's a sense in which when you're trying to make a film on the evolution of, of 19th century African-American music, jazz, if you will, that in a way you're charting the history of, of a soundtrack, right? That sound, that the, the the soundtrack to advanced industrial capitalism itself. You know, I was I've been amazed over the last twenty years how much, when we need to speak about certain periods that 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 symbolise affluence and wealth and uh, and so on, how much jazz is always the soundtrack for that. You know, when you think about all representations of the Roaring Twenties, as soon as 
you see it in any film, there will be the ragtime. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like, you know, so there is, there is a kind of symbiosis. I, and I'm, I don't think it's just in my head. I, I think everyone feels as if that music somehow exists in a kind of mimetic relation to our sense of triumphant capitalism at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. And so it felt, it felt right. I mean, that if you have a, a piece, uh, a multi-screen piece, in which you see footage of acres of sugarcane fields being worked by African-American men and women, if you see uh, factories in which clearly the consumer goods have been produced by 19th century Italian and Eastern European migrants, that if you were to see those things in, in archive form, it was also important to have a, a kind of counterpoint to those in the present. You know, so in a very straightforward sense, I simply wanted a way of mirroring in the present what you could see in some of the archival material from the past. But, I, but it also felt to me as if there was a dialogue between them, between these three elements, you know, the archival past and, and its industrial relics, a figure who will be seen in time as a kind of father figure to the soundtrack to that moment. And, of course, what you see in the present. You know, it just seems to me that the present, we needed to find a way of suggesting echoes in the present, which were both archival and sonic. And there might be other ways of doing it, but this, this seemed the best way for me. So for listeners, let me um, just kind of quickly describe how one of the ways that works in the film. So there are these beautiful shots of industrial landscapes, factories and such. And then the next cut or, or, or pretty close might be of archival footage of uh, black field workers cutting down sugarcane, you know, earlier or later in the film, probably earlier. There are shots of uh, well-dressed white factory workers working in textile mills, textile plants, juxtaposed against a, a few shots later of, say, black people digging coal or, or mining coal. So the, the, there is kind of this, this is a horrible phrase I'll never use again, tripartite cycle of, of, these, <laughs> of these things that run, uh, of these references that run through the film. We skipped by costuming earlier. I, I you know, uh, don't know how to describe how thoroughly opulent and gorgeous and and what people are, what the characters in the film are wearing is, other than to say that there might be, you know, like 10 or 12 or 14 costume changes for each character in the film. I mean, not only are they wearing gorgeous stuff, they are wearing a lot of gorgeous stuff. Obviously, that was really important to you. Why? It's important to me because I'm trying to work in a genre, and, and, and the genre is, is really a costume, the costume drama. And the costume drama says three things pretty much simultaneously. It says we are referencing the historical, that generally what will be going on in this piece will be of an internal variety. You know, costume dramas are very rarely action films. <laughs> <laughs> they're about they're about what's going on in people's heads and and finally you know they inevitably are also a, a way of tracking a kind of emotional arc 
you know, when you think of some of the great ones, uh, recent ones, you know, the Age of Innocence, you know, Scorsese's uh, Age of Innocent, one that comes to mind. You know, the whole thing is about constructing a, a costume arc so that when you arrive at the moment, at the end, when Newland Archer finally realizes that what his life has been, it makes emotional, sartorial sense. And it was very much an ideal for, for this. I wanted in the end to end up with a piece in which when you see, and for those who haven't seen it, they don't know what I mean when they, when they get there, when you see him in the final dark suit in the performance space, that the sobriety of it makes a certain kind of emotional sense. And when you see him beyond that in, in the rough hewn costumes that they too would make a certain kind of sense. So costume dramas find a way of infusing dress codes with a kind of dramaturgy, a dramaturgical arc, if you will. And it, this was something I was very keen to explore. So uh, yes, they look good. That's important because that's part of the genre. <laughs> People very rarely look ugly in costume dramas. <laughs> but but the, the reason for that is, I think, in part, what one is involved with is, is, is a sort of uh, quote-unquote higher truth of the dress code. It's, it's about trying to find a moral map uh, of the intangible, which uses the visible dress code as a way of sketching that out for you. And so you have to do it right. You have to do it. You have to obey some of its codes because otherwise it doesn't work. And one of the codes is, is that elegance has to sit at the center of this so that its absence starts to say something. You know, you have to have it because when you move away from it, you're saying something with that move, either left or right. You know, you, you want elegance to be the, the yardstick by which a, a certain kind of evolution of a character can be measured or seen. Another way you really underscore beauty throughout the film is in the symmetrical way you compose shots. And, and really, even in, you know, I, I know we don't talk about Georgian pictorial construct in film, but, you know, the asylum is, is, is a Georgian building. It's perfectly symmetrical. When you shoot what had been a textile factory and shoot it empty, that's a, that's a perfectly symmetrical Georgian shot. When you shoot the black church later in the film, it's a Georgian shot. Obviously, symmetry was, was an intentional choice, but how much is that, how much are you hoping American... Americans read that as as kind of coming from a British architectural tradition, as referencing British involvement in in the fundamental injustice. Put it this way, there is certainly a will for symmetry on my part. In a way, one of the reasons for that is to provide, again, another yardstick by which we might measure his rise and decline, if you like. This is, you know, a quintessentially 19th century story about a figure who comes of age in a period just after the ending of antebellum slavery. He's 
parents were born in it and his grandparents were. And those were the spaces in which they did most of the work. The, the Bowdoin family were basically brought from Virginia to New Orleans, essentially to work for a very rich cotton merchant who lived in a house of impeccable symmetry. Symmetry pervaded their lives. It defined the spaces of their exclusion, and it defined the, the, the places they could enter if you will, or not enter. So, so form itself is a central player in this drama of becoming and unbecoming. And it's very important for me that, that wherever form is complicit in a drama, that we out it and, and let people know. So that's one of the reasons why it's probably one of the most forbiddingly symmetrical pieces I've ever done. You know, it meant it, it was important. To, to, to how uh, one experienced his life. Finally, I don't want to give away how the film ends, where that, that shot or those shots are and, and, and what happens. But I do want to ask you about how it kind of really implicates the viewer in this whole story. It kind of uh, puts us in a place that many of us who have been to New Orleans have been. And it, and it brings us to a place that reminds us that we have been there as outsiders, as tourists, as gawkers. And I wonder uh, how and why that was the way you wanted to bring Bolden's story and this historical arc to, to, to the end. I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting that somebody like me endlessly has to ask themselves is what is the difference between what you're doing and, and, and a feature film, let's say, a piece for the cinema. And the sequences you're talking about is, is really a very good illustration of the difference. Because the, the, the fiction of the period drama would be to take you into spaces where you get to know everything. Oh, this is what he sounded like, and this is where he played it. What I have to do, and I think this is the difference essentially between time-based work for the gallery and, and other spaces, is to tell you why it's important that you cannot know everything. Why it's important that some things are withheld, because that is actually the true portrait of your real relation to the past. So I, I can't give too much away, but all I would say is when people are, when they get to see it and when they get to the, the, the end sequences, they should bear that in mind. That what is offered to you both as a lack and a presence is about telling you the things you can't and shouldn't know. Because that's, that's what, you know, we don't know what Buddy Bolden sounded like. We have no way of knowing that. It was never recorded. And what I don't want to do is to offer you the fiction that what you're listening to, for instance, is what he sounded like. That's not, that's not a liberty I want to take with the historical. And I think it's one of those ethical, important asides that, that gallery pieces can do. They can, they can force you to ask yourself the question of why you need to know something that cannot be known. 
<laughs> you know, only gallery pieces can do that. This this would sound like a completely either frivolous or highbrow conceit in a single screen piece with a cinema. Because in the cinema, you are entitled to then say to the to the filmmaker, well, then why have you made this film if you can't take me there? And I think that would be a fair question for the cinema. It is not a fair question, it seems to me, in the gallery, because the gallery uh, space is not trying to offer you necessarily fictions, historical fictions. That's not my vocation. I will, I will play with the historical, I will question it, I will toss it around, we will dialogue, but ultimately there is no hubris in what I'm doing which says that I know in advance of history what it really was. I don't, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. So this is a sort of long-winded, slightly elliptical way of answering the question <laughs> that you can't ask and that I can't ask. <laughs> When, uh, you know, who knows, in a few years when we talk and tape again, I have other things about the ending that, that I'll ask. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Should we wait till then? <laughs> yes. Yes. John Acomfra, what a delight. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.